Is Ted Cruz going to say that FEMA shouldn't give any funds to New York to help rebuild? Of course he will. That's exactly <laughs> what he did after Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> they shouldn't have brought their uh, a this alien invasion on themselves. Right. It was probably abortions and gay marriage. <laughs> God. Live from the Mundangerous Tectonic Plate in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 268 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about implementing events that will change the face of your game world. But first, the party fights to the death in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the shock jock kills with their heart in the Character Creation Forge. I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one -on -one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Behold Her share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found, or visit beholdherpodcast.com. All right, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in southern Karnath, on the edge of the Mornland, the party is chasing a killer. So we're in this arcane research facility led by a human child named Pole, who was one of the refugees the party tried to save on the day of mourning. But she is different than we remember, changed maybe, colder than we remember, brimming with psionic power. That's new. Eviler in some <laughs> way, for some reason. More cackling. Huh. The girl bathes the entire cavern in flames, uh, but fortunately Switch the Paladin protects those around her, dimming the fire with the Traveler's Holy Aura. Now, armed with only a very rudimentary understanding of the arcane contraption that is animating more of the Stitch zombies, Xan the Warlock uh, does what he does best and just sort of takes a lucky swipe at some of the tubing with his glaive and ends up cutting off the flow of water to the remaining sarcophagi, which all shut down. Yeah, a rudimentary understanding. That is, if you break it, it doesn't work. <laughs> a rudimentary understanding of I rolled really low on that Arcana check. <laughs> then Pole gestures again, and the temperature of the room plummets to impossibly cold temperatures for a brief moment, and the whole party can feel the deathly chill in their bones. And that cold saps the last bit of Bramble the Shifter's energy, and he falls to the ground unconscious. But that means that his enchantment that is keeping the final stitch zombie busy is broken. So it looks down at his body and howls, using its magic to pull all of the blood out of his body in a single instant and leaving him a dry corpse. Distracted and frankly delighted by the carnage, Pole doesn't see Zan's mighty swing and his conjured glaive slices her head in half, lodging halfway down her chest. Her tiny corpse falls with a splash into the pool. And the magic sustaining it having been spent, the last zombie decays rapidly, leaving a glistening sack of blood next to Bramble's body. At that moment, though, with Paul's death, 
unbidden memories of long ago battles on the plane of dreams, Dalquor, begin to fill the Kalishtar Vesakad's mind. He remembers friends who were suddenly turned to enemies. He remembers betrayal by those he held most dear. He recalls the paranoia of never knowing who is truly themselves. And looking at Paul's body, he finally pieces together a phrase from Ephraim's notes, the brain tree and its branches. Yeah, that might be one way that a mortal mind would render the most horrible infiltration technique of Elashvatar, the Dreaming Dark, the Mind Seed. A discipline that lets a powerful scion rewrite a mind and, and create a copy of their own ego. As the party ponders this revelation and begins to men- minister to Bramble and try to patch up their own wounds and uh, put his blood back into his body, they quickly notice healing magic isn't working. And looking up at the dark water of the Seer River pouring in from the ceiling, they finally realize they've crossed into the Mornland. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are talking about implementing world-shaking events. This is a uh, suggestion from the Discord. Thank you, Awful Monk. Also, keep those uh, suggestions coming because they're a big help. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, 268 episodes in, we're out of ideas. <laughs> we need some help. We're just going to keep rehashing them. Player profiles again. Hello. <laughs> All right. So many games happen at low levels. I think most games happen at low levels. But as the party gets more powerful, the stakes inevitably rise. And eventually, if your campaign continues long enough, you might have PCs who become embroiled in or perhaps become the cause of events that are going to change the entire world. Yeah, and I think this becomes a problem when you're in a lot of pre-written settings where this risks breaking the lore of the setting itself. Yeah, like sometimes you'll have players who are really invested in the lore. I mean, you know, this is Forgotten Realms, right? Like Mm -hmm. Elminster wouldn't do that or why didn't Elminster come fix this? He would never let an entire nation be destroyed. Yeah, Mister would never create, would never do a murder. Yeah, that's right. Never. Uh, Maybe murder by omission when she didn't (laughs) save all those people. Uh, But the flip side of it is like, even if this is a homebrew setting um, or even if even if you're fine with changing things from canonical lore, you can really get yourself into a mess when now all those books that you bought or all those notes that you wrote don't apply anymore because an entire country is gone or like that person's not the king anymore and the political station, uh, situation has changed completely. This risks the, uh, the, the problem where the investment that everybody had in the setting is now diminished because the setting has become, uh, some core part of the setting has become unrecognizable to the people who are most into it. All right, so when do you want to actually use world-shaking events? I think the, the most interesting time might be when the players make it happen. You, imp- you included an important caveat in the uh, in the notes here intentionally or unintentionally <laughs> <laughs> just desserts oh, whoops <laughs> you uh you pushed the button huh <laughs> can't imagine that founding two rival assassin guilds in the city was going to cause problems <laughs> <laughs> but you know what we're invested now it's fine i'm into it we own this problem so i think a good time to have the world change is maybe at the end of an arc 
maybe as a consequence of the players encountering the moral quandary that they're faced with, right? Uh, do we, you know, save uh, the royal or or do we not? Do we help the, the rebels or, or do we not? You know, it finally all comes to the head, usually at the end of an arc. The players are left making like a big decision and it's good storytelling to be able to tell them this is consequential. This is going to mean something. Like make your decision wisely and carefully because everything after this depends on it. Yeah, and and the the trick of this is making sure that when you when you present this quandary that the stakes make sense to the players in a way that doesn't feel like a gotcha, right? You don't want to paint them into a corner of like kill your eldest son or kill your eldest daughter because right? neither one is going to be satisfying like they're going to make a choice obviously but like they're not going to like the choice regardless another time to do this is actually right after this i mean you can get into a situation where you know at the end of an arc the players aren't necessarily thinking okay what happens to the world after they're thinking we have to save the world or you know we have to save the kingdom or fulfill our mission or whatever it is right they're just they're focused on getting the job done and the consequences that come later may not necessarily be clear or they're not really thinking about it or whatever they might be, it's worth it because like, you know, maybe the world is different, but we're trying to save it from being blown up completely, right? Right, right. So the consequences might only manifest at the beginning of the next arc when you're in the aftermath of all the decisions and now everyone's sort of sitting together, you're, you know, uh, about to embark on maybe a new journey or mission or rebuilding or whatever. And you're like, Oh my God! What what just happened? And like, what are the repercussions of these actions? Yeah, the Avengers have just saved the world from the alien invasion, but there's three hundred billion dollars of property damage in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Ten thousand people are dead. Uh, there are congressional investigations. You know, they weren't thinking about this when Tony Stark was like, "I'm gonna fly this nuke up into a portal." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's like, oh my good, the property damage, what's going on? And uh, I don't know, will that uh, representative from Illinois be really upset at us? <laughs> Look, my, my point here is that New York City is crippled, not that the property mattered. It's that, it's that New York City as a setting is no longer recognizable. <laughs> is Ted Cruz going to say that FEMA shouldn't give any funds to New York to help rebuild? Of course he will. That's exactly <laughs> what he did after Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> they shouldn't have brought their uh, a this alien invasion on themselves. Right. It was probably abortions and gay marriage. <laughs> God. The other time you can do this is when the lore dictates it. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone made a decision or, you know, someone in the game made a decision. Uh, but there might be consequences from actions that reverberate across your setting. So, like, if a god dies, whether the players did that or not, what happens to their followers and what happens to that church? Yeah, that might be an inciting event, right? That doesn't necessarily have to be something the characters did. It's just something the characters now have to live with. Yeah, or it could be something inflicted upon your setting by an addition change. A successful coup or a, a failure to protect a head of state, an assassination that's successful that suddenly creates a power vacuum. Um, the sort of steady state politics of your setting might be thrown into an uproar now that everyone is clamoring for whatever power is missing. We talked about this before. Like when you bring a doomsday weapon to a game, it should go off once. I mean, Chekhov's doomsday device. Right. Obviously. Right. You destroy at least one Alderaan. Uh, one thing though we didn't really get from Star Wars is like 
what happened after Alderaan blew up? You know, one, one thing one of the things we really like about Eberron is that you get so much of the repercussions of what happens when one nation was destroyed, right? But like, I think I didn't see anyone who like knew anyone from Alderaan except for Princess Leia until the Mandalorian. And then you're like, oh, right, there were people off planet and they were pissed. So like, you know, magical cataclysm. This is always like the, the gun to the head that the BBEG has to the party, right? Well, what happens when they test that out? Or what happens when they're like, I'm going to do this to your country, and then they blow up a different country? <laughs> <laughs> or even on top of that, what if the party fails? You know, like, what if there's a TPK, or like, you you just didn't succeed in time, and the doomsday weapon actually works, and the bad guy wins? There are huge consequences for your setting. Yeah, I mean, the bad guy might not live to see the outcome, but you still failed and now you have to live with the consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the inciting event for the Band of Blades campaign setting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing here, I think be careful about applying too much verisimilitude here. You know, like you don't necessarily need to do whatever it is that would make the most logical sense within your setting. Yeah, I think you want to err on the side of plausible rather than perfect. Um, you want to keep players invested so they feel rooted in the the new normal but you also want them to have space to write their story right you want them to have room to grow into their plot yeah and i think that's that's something that a lot of gms especially who do homebrew settings get hung up on and i think also players who are playing in settings where they want to make their mark on the world the the thing that should happen in the game is what's best for the story and what's the most fun for the people at the table as a story to tell not necessarily the thing that like historically would be the most likely outcome of uh you know uh, of this particular vote or, or this particular action as we can see you know I, I studied world war one history and as we all know you know given uh these three accords between these nations this would inevitably result in a, a cold war uh i can assure you that i've listened to enough episodes of system mastery to tell you it's not just homebrewation. <laughs> a lot of heartbreakers out there, too. <laughs> a lot of Ed Greenwood settings. <laughs> when you are going to implement something like this, it is probably a good idea to include some foreshadowing before you just spring it on everybody. Whether you're the GM being like, hey, the world's different, or you're a player who's like, I'm going to make a fateful decision and everyone has to live with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to detonate the bomb and kill us all and <laughs> make sure that this guy doesn't walk away. <laughs> uh, thinking outside the box. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm tired of this build. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so of course there can be cases where an outcome is truly completely unforeseen, right? Uh, that situation where you have the agent of chaos player or... Um, maybe, you know, a, a scene just doesn't play out the way you expect, right? You have the the classic, like, uh, I murder the king, <laughs> right? Like, you seek the audience, and then and then instead of negotiating, you, you just go to murder, or something happens, right? And it just doesn't go to plan. Make sure that there's buy-in when that happens, right? Like, that's, that's an important thing that you kind of got to have that above-the-table conversation of, like, hey this is going to ripple. Like, are you sure that this is what your character would do and then live with it? Otherwise, like foreshadow it. So it feels like an earned outcome, right? Like it feels like the, if they had just followed the threads along in the right way, they would have seen that this was going to happen. 
Yeah, you especially want to make sure that people aren't stepping on the toes of other people at the table. Like, all right, maybe my character would kill the king, but that's because I'm not from this country. Three other characters are literally from this country. How do those players feel about me murdering their king and then them like having to deal with all these like backstory repercussions and maybe their backstory doesn't even apply anymore? Yeah, now they're suddenly not from that kingdom because right. they're that kingdom's most wanted. <laughs> Aiding and abetting an assassin. <laughs> uh, no, we immediately brought him to justice. What are you talking about? Here's his head. Right. <laughs> you should build a new character. So I think if you if you have the situation where the player causes it, uh, it can be good to telegraph those consequences. You know, sometimes the the drama is in not knowing what comes next, right? When mm -hmm. you set off the cataclysm, um, what is the outcome? Like, yeah, you have to play to find out. But in other cases, like where it's a pretty pretty obvious linear series of events that if you you know attack the king in his throne room, you're going to be you know persona non grata, public enemy number one. You know, make sure that you're sharing that with the group so they're making an informed decision and not just acting in the passionate dice moment yeah you can definitely have the above the table conversation and especially the conversation about character knowledge versus player knowledge where especially if you have a lot of lore that's intertwined you're more likely to sort of get caught up in these strands you can very you can definitely say i mean anybody at the table can say all right so if you do kill the king um his political marriage to the queen of the neighboring nation is the only thing keeping them from a historic war. So if he dies without an heir, which, you know, he doesn't have an heir, uh, there's probably going to be an immediate war. So I don't know, just maybe consider that, I guess. Yeah. And this can just be dramatic irony, too, right? Like you've informed the players. The decision has been made by the characters. They're going through with it. But now, like, they get to watch this lemony snicket unfortunate series of events <laughs> unfold uh with the full knowledge that like this is going poorly or this is going extremely well because you know either my character is extremely foolhardy or extremely lucky yeah i mean that can be a lot of fun right like our characters aren't from here we know the lore because we've been playing in this setting forever we know that you know kais is a vampire and whatever and this is gonna like set the lich queen on on karnath if we if we murder him and the players can be like all right, this is going to be cool. Let's watch this. And yeah. the characters just think they're doing a, a good idea. Right. The important thing, though, is like everyone's on board. Everyone's on the same page. We're going to change stuff. It's it's going to be kind of crazy. Let's go for it. I, I think another thing that can be really interesting to play with some of these world-shaking events is the impossible goals that PCs set out with. You know, like you get that that backstory where like, you know, I want to undo the past and save my family that I lost. Or, you know, you have the uh, the the PC who's so power hungry, like they want to ascend to heaven and fight the gods themselves, right? Like they want to become gods. Or yeah, I want to kill my patron, right? <laughs> yeah, I want to <laughs> seek out my great old one and destroy them, right? Like, um, like that's impossible, right? But in a game, it's it's in the remit. You know, that could work. So. Like, it's great if you can get that kind of goal out there early and then set along that path, you know, that, that's been earned over the course of a campaign. When you change the setting because, um, you know, the, uh, whatever, the god, of, <laughs> the god of magic has been slain by a greedy wizard. <laughs> um, now, you know, your setting is different, but, like, that was the point. You know, for that character, that was the payoff. They wanted to, like, kick that anthill and see what happened. Yeah, the player who rolled up Caius the Wizard at level one told the rest of the party, my whole plan is to become so powerful that I will supplant the goddess of magic. 
And so like when he was like, all right, I'm going to roll my dumb epic ritual like four years later in uh, in uh, in real life. Everyone was like, no, we know you were going to do this. (laughs) We think it's a bad idea, but we're not surprised. (laughs) Uh, I mean, this is this is Flashpoint Paradox, right? In, In DC Comics, when the Flash like runs backward through time to save his mom, that changes everything and and once he does it the first time right he realizes oh crap you can't really like change the past i can't save my mom like i can basically destroy the world and have my mom be alive or i have to like go back in time and stop myself from preventing my mother from being killed Mm -hmm. you know but he now knows the consequences of these actions so if you're gonna like mess with the timeline be ready for crazy shenanigans so let's talk about implementing world-shaking events in your campaigns I like to end on a cliffhanger. So the end of a session, right? The bomb goes off. Well, the bomb goes off, all right? Like the city or the country or whatever is destroyed. You all know that's what happened. Uh, Maybe you survived, maybe you didn't. But next time, we're going to find out what the consequences are. The portal opens. The armies of hell pour through, you know? Like the last image you're left with is uh, flaming skeletons with with axes of, of... eldritch fire right the king is dead long live the king uh, even a, in a political game you can end on a cliffhanger the um you know the uh, vizier comes out uh, announces the death you now know there's a new king with completely different priorities all right i guess uh, we're going to open next session with the uh, talking in chambers yeah or i mean even in like a lower stakes kind of environment right like world shaking could be the world of the characters you know like a nice black agents game you find out your handler is actually a vampire or a part of the vampire conspiracy themselves. Um, and, you know, you end a session on having killed them. And now you are truly free agents with no protection of any government because you're, you've just killed a, you know, a high level spy. Yeah. Who wasn't burned. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unlike you <laughs> idiots. <Yeah. laughs> and the biggest thing here actually is that this gives you time to plan if you're the GM or to plot if you are the players have those conversations on discord or email or text or whatever you can do or or just mull it over stew over it in the week of the month before you have the next session and be like all right what are the things that i i want to have happen what are the opportunities here what are the challenges who do we need to save you know what what are, what is at risk of being lost right now and be ready to like jump in and and tackle that depending on what the immediate ramifications are Speaking of which, you do want to consider the realistic consequences of whatever has just happened. If there's a big earthquake, it's quite likely that there's going to be a tsunami across the ocean. When the Death Star was destroyed, it definitely destroyed the entire ecosystem of the Moon of Endor and all the Ewoks are dead. To say nothing of the economy of the Moon of Endor. (laughs) (laughs) Which is more important, honestly. (laughs) I know there's rubble falling from the sky and it's on fire and there's a lot of radiation, but could we really just get back to work and open (laughs) the the bars again (laughs) can we just get back to work laying booby traps (laughs) it's what my people are good at (laughs) it's a booby trap based economy (laughs) right (laughs) so consider things like geologic repercussions right big cataclysms can have uh big repercussions on the landscape itself um fukushima basically made large parts of northern japan uninhabitable chernobyl did the same thing a magical cataclysm will absolutely do the same thing asteroid impact anything like that yeah and you can also just like kind of veer outside of the like 
true physical world, right? Like any type of big impact, explosion, magical cataclysm, like volcanoes rise, right, and erupt. Like the the you know seas boil. You, you, like you can you can do whatever you really want to do here to like just mm-hmm. kind of create a, a a grand change that that's immediately recognizable whenever you show up. Like the sky is now filled with ash. I mean, when the exterminatus came, they boiled the seas. And that released Bastion. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) Of course, there are political ramifications, you know, assuming that anybody's still left alive. Um, uh, Any change in head of state can cause huge problems across the world. I mean, look at the U.S. in 2016. Right. Like the, the repercussions of the setting of Earth weren't just for people living in the United States. Like the political communications uh, and and relationships between basically every other country in the world shifted. There's also relig- religious considerations, um, not just what happens to the various religions if they, you know, if a god dies or a god ascends or whatever, but just like what new religions creep up around some super powerful figure. Certainly cults and and all types of other followings are like prone to follow whatever strange new power occurs. But even if it's not necessarily um, violent or even world-shaking, like when a, when a pope dies in the real world, these days it's a peaceful transfer of power. Um, but the, the repercussions still change the religious and political landscape, right? For the first mm-hmm. time we have uh, a pope from South America and that changes the priorities of the church. Yeah, I but mean, also, he might okay. he he might not care at all about hunting vampires anymore. And now your second Inquisition isn't around to keep the uh, Camarilla at bay. Well, it sounds like time for a schism, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's just really good at at uh, hiding the hunt. Okay, you don't want the vampires to know you're coming for them, right? There can be social repercussions, certainly. Um, I think. Uh, Rise of Tiamat, the 5e adventure path ends. I mean, if the party's successful, it ends with them destroying basically an incarnation of Tiamat or some version of Tiamat, who is the goddess of greed in Forgotten Realms. And I think there's a there's like a brief paragraph that's like, what happens in the world now that uh, greed isn't uh, a thing that has such a grip on people? Interesting. I saw ROT in the notes and thought it was Reign of Terror. I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess that's an interesting way to think of Robespierre. <laughs> I mean, let them eat cake was a little more greedy, but okay. <laughs> Versailles still exists, all right? It's an a- avatars right. to greed all over the place. Uh, of course, there could also be scientific advancements. They, they don't have to be destructive. Not every advancement is a weapon, right? Um, if you build the first radio device and you expand communications across seas, um, you know, a, a medical breakthrough... Uh, you know, the the first uh, successful clone, right? Any of these types of things, bringing in more of a sci-fi element will um, change the way that the world works. Like you might be ushered into suddenly a closer to post-scarcity society. Yeah, this is one of the complaints about J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies is that he just had Scotty whip together a, a long-range transporter, but that completely changes the face of the entire setting because you don't need starships anymore. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it just went nowhere. No one used it again. No one used this, like, galaxy-changing technology anymore. <laughs> well, because it was whipped together, you know? It wasn't <laughs> it wasn't ready for uh, prime time. Right, and then no one, uh, no one investigated it anymore or did any more research to make it work. Right, well, Scotty was like, you know what? 
this would change things too much. We got to bury this technology. He patented it. That's what happened. Okay. People were like, we would like to use this. And he was like, yeah, that'll be $100 billion. Wait, I thought Scotty like, was What's a, a dollar? Woman. Is Scotty not a woman? <laughs> I mean, I would love to see a reboot with, a, with Scotty as a woman. That would be great. But I want, I want the same brogue. Okay. <laughs> oh, great. That's a great name for a, for a Scotsman. Jesus. <laughs> okay, whatever. I don't watch Star Trek. Moving on. So once you've determined what would make sense in the game, figure out what's going to be interesting for your game and then leave out the things that aren't, even if it does make sense. So, you know, if a god has died, there are a lot of ways that could go. It could lead to the restructuring of an entire pantheon, or you could get a new god, or a different god could subsume that portfolio, or it could be that there's just no god for that concept. Pick which one of those is true. You have lots of options for like what would be fun for your particular game. If you have an idea ahead of time, you can choose it. If not, maybe let dice decide, right? Like there's lots of viable ways this could break. Leave it up to the dice gods. Uh, and this is a case where player input is fantastic. Um, it's great if you can end on a cliffhanger, save yourself 10 minutes and be like, so what do y'all think is coming next? Like, how do you think this changes things? Um, give them some agency uh, to kind of define what they think the world will be like and try to incorporate some of those things into the future so you know you have their buy-in um, given that, you know, they suggested it. Yeah, and players try to have agency in this moments in the game, like be the cause of the world change so that you can uh, help determine what the outcome is going to be. And then, I mean, if you want to go full improv the way that I probably would, take all those ideas, put them in a table, Right, like set that table in the center of the group and roll a die on it and find out what the outcomes are. <laughs> like, and then figure it out afterwards, right? Like, justify the outcomes uh, based on the dice so that the players had their input, you know, sheer fate had its input. Uh, and now you get to go make it all make sense. I think that's a great way to get buy in as well because everyone buys into the rolling on the table idea. And then whatever pops up whatever someone actually rolls like we've already said we're gonna we're gonna go with this and we'll just see where it happens and like we'll make it work in the fiction and like a randomness in general is a good way to implement these events because i don't necessarily mean always rolling on on a table to figure out what happens i mean like you might just be someone might be rolling you know the the gm rolls an attack or a, a skill check for the enemy um or the players are like trying to stop some sort of arcane eldritch device from going off. And like, it's kind of up to the dice who's going to succeed on that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it can, it can kind of be good to be like, Oh my God, like you didn't succeed. You all rolled terribly. This person, like the enemy rolled really well. And like, now there's a giant explosion and we're going to need to figure it out. But everyone's already bought into the idea that like dice do have a huge impact on your story rather than just sort of like by fiat saying, oh yeah, they successfully, um, you know, Ozymandias, the, this uh, terrible event 33 minutes ago and 100 miles away. Yeah, oh, oh, you all failed. Well, it probably wasn't this round anyway. You can probably try again next round. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if you want to really bring in players to figure out what happens to the world, I like to just have an entire session determining what the outcome is going to be right like the players can be acting in character i mean maybe they've worked their way up to positions of power um 
in the game. And so they'll have a say in like how the army responds or, you know, who's going to be the next ruler of the nation or, or whatever. But it could also be that they're not necessarily playing themselves. They just take the role of like a force in the setting or, or you just do it above the table as like everyone is co-story or tellers together figuring out where the game is going to go. I like the idea of doing like the the 200 year time skip, handing them like pre-gens uh, who are all characters traveling, like telling campfire stories of what happened 200 years ago. And that's how they kind of generate what changes occurred in the world, right? As they kind of sit there and, and argue over theories of what occurred and now what the outcome has been. Yeah, and that's a great way also to just connect those particular characters and build backstories for them. Like, you know, the the wide-eyed human is like, oh, I heard stories about that time. And the elf is like, it was nothing like that. Let me tell you. <laughs> and then, I mean, of course, the lingering question is, well, what happened to the heroes at the end of the at the end of the story? And then the next session you go back to find out, right? And then you can mm -hmm. continue your campaign where it was. You just get or like you said, right, that becomes the foundational like telling of a time skip right like now your new character is living in the post-apocalypse or, or post uh changed world yeah and then you know you have all this dramatic irony because the players know what happened because they're the ones that made it happen or they lived through it yeah <laughs> they know what the day what caused the day of mourning <laughs> six other jerks far away from them <laughs> <laughs> yeah who i know nothing about those losers made terrible decisions All right, so in-game, when you're sort of rolling out or figuring out the consequences, think about if the PCs know about these consequences. Like, they might be at the center of this entire maelstrom and, like, making decisions or, like, seeing it happen with their own eyes. But it could just be that there's a repercussion somewhere else. The earthquake here caused a tsunami 8,000 miles away. When do they even find out about that? How do they discover it? Or, you know, if they're off on the planes gallivanting and they kill a god, when they come back to the material plane, what is it like? Well, how has the church changed? Or, you know, are, are people like throwing down statues and, and like burning effigies because like the, the goddess of love is dead? How do they respond to those changes? You know, are, are is this what they expected or what they wanted? Or is this kind of a monkey's paw where they were like, haha, I will ascend to the heavens and kill God. And now, oh, crap. Uh, I someone killed God. <laughs> yeah, now I got God problems. Yeah, uh, turns out the devil's also real uh, and has no one to stop him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the gates of hell opened, <laughs> and and flaming skeletons with elephant axes of flame stormed out. <laughs> Finally, my time has come. It is Satan and Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you, you then, of course, pose the question, do your characters want to fix this? Like, are they now <laughs> spending their, their next arc of the campaign undoing the damage they've done or um, recognizing, you know, like the, the utopia they thought they would bring is not exactly what they would have expected, even if it isn't, you know, patently bad. It might just be, you know, unrecognizable to them or undesirable for some other reason, right? Like unintended consequences. There's a reason that the Flash runs back in time at the beginning of every Flashpoint comic, right? That's the inciting event. All the rest of it is just trying to fix it and get back to square one. Right. 
So I think if you want to run this in your game, there are several inspirations that you can look to and either implement it in the same way or you know just just uh, think about how it spun out in when you were reading it or when you were watching it. And I think the one that I love is Ray Bradbury's The Sound of Thunder, which is a short story about people who like take time travel trips into the past so they can like safari hunt dinosaurs and they have to be very careful not to like damage anything off the path or else that can have you know a butterfly effect throughout uh you know millions of years and and of course what happens is they come back and the world is completely changed uh as an alternative you can read michael creighton's timeline in which he people go back in time to joust <laughs> <laughs> you can uh you can watch uh, jerry o'connell's sliders <laughs> But the the sort of realization of the people who come back to the present day and are like, wait a minute, something's something's weird here. Something's strange. I don't really understand. Why is everything spelled differently? Right. right. We never drop that vestigial E off of old. <laughs> uh, also, turns out the changes are a lot bigger than uh, the spellings. Okay. The whole world is different and we either need to fix this or it's, I don't know, time to give in to despair. <laughs> The Legend of Korra, the sequel to Avatar The Last Airbender, I think does a really good job of advancing a timeline where, you know, the events of the first TV season, uh, first TV series really change things, right? The eh, It's like an 11-year-old show, whatever, spoilers. The head of an entire nation is defeated and put in prison. And now, like, there isn't in, imperialism isn't uh, a huge thing in the world anymore. Uh, and also an entire genocided race is is back from the dead. So it skips 70 years ahead. And not only are there new nations and new collaborations between those nations, but you also have the advancement of technology and the advancement of bending techniques. It sounds it sounds like a better time skip than Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. God, I didn't put that on here because that's terrible. <laughs> that's what not to do. <laughs> I mean, another one is Forgotten Realms, what not to do, right? Like, take everything that the people who like your setting like about it and change it completely, right? I, I think that's that's a good caveat is change one thing or change a couple things, but the spell plague in Forgotten Realms switched everything in every country. Right. Every city was different. It just wasn't even the same setting anymore. You didn't yeah. have, even have touchstones. Right. And the lesson for Star Wars is change something. Right. <laughs> like, because <laughs> we don't want to end up with the same plucky rebels against space Nazis. We've already done that. We got no payoff. We never saw the positive outcome whatsoever. Right. With literally the same plan and this, the same doomsday weapon. Right. Well, it's the same J.J. Abrams problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The scouring of the Shire at the end of the Lord of the Rings uh, is a good example here, too. If you want to do a little smaller scale, like the world has changed. So much is different, right? Thousands of years of basically war are over and the devil has basically been defeated. But they come home and everything's different because the world has now opened up. It is, it is a new age that is dawning. And, uh, you know, the, the hobbits who are really tired now need to face what's happening to their home. Wait, what's happening to their home, though? Oh, it's industrialization. It's, uh, uh, it's Tolkien being like, factories are terrible. Got it. Which like, you know, in the 50s, factories were pretty freaking terrible. <laughs> All right. So some quick caveats before we uh, get out of here. Uh, I think the most important is do not turn success into failure. 
right? Like that's the worst possible gotcha of you got exactly what you wanted. You built exactly towards what you were expecting. And then there's a gotcha moment. Whatever you did that you thought was successful was actually a failure and you're worse off for it. Like let the success be the success. Right. It doesn't mean that every consequence from the success needs to be positive. You know, that's an interesting way to sort of like connect your arcs. But don't just pull the rug out from under your party and be like, you really screwed up. Also, don't dig yourself into a hole. I think this is a thing that I'll see people asking on forums a lot is, okay, I read the lore uh, and then my party did this thing and I sort of winged it. And now I think I introduced a new god into the canon or like I have absolutely no idea how to prevent these countries from going to war. Like you can cut it off at the pass and, and just be like, you know, someone made a different decision or someone's a lot more level headed or there's some magical influence or something going in there. But you don't need to dive all the way down and wed yourself to verisimilitude and all of the lore um, just because it exists in a book somewhere. Yeah. Inertia is an incredibly powerful force. Um, less change is always easy to justify. <laughs> like, you know, uh, two countries don't necessarily want to go to war, even if this is the powder keg moment. Uh, it's easy to talk them down through negotiation or, you know, divine intervention or or whatever, right? Yeah, I think it's probably more interesting and more manageable to think of it like a fractal. Uh, you change one thing, and then that has repercussions two or three of them. And then those also have repercussions. And you can take those as far down as it is useful, uh, or you can just stop them and it, it doesn't have any further repercussions. And now you're like three degrees removed from the inciting event and no one's confused about why there wasn't any change because there have been plenty of changes. But they're sort of revealed when you need them in the story. And all this is really to say, like, don't destroy a setting that you love. If you're playing in a particular setting because you think it's really cool, and you're invested in it, then, you know, don't smash all the things that you think are so great about it and that made you want to play there in the first place. Change some things so that you can have an impact, but keep the the tone and keep some of the problems. And if you are going to destroy the setting you love, don't act unilaterally. <laughs> Get some buy-in. Work together. Um, you know, you've got other people at the table who have to live and interact in this world as well. Um get them involved in figuring out what changes yeah so a couple examples from our games uh we did this exactly in dark sun actually we destroyed the dark sun setting because we fixed it yeah we fixed it we totally fixed it (laughs) (laughs) you 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 bugged out the rest of us fixed it yes uh wait no somebody straight up betrayed us oh yeah that's true as always yeah um (laughs) I mean, in this instance, I, I don't think we're planning on going back to Dark Zone anytime soon. So, like, no one was like, oh, no, if we kill off all the Sorcerer Kings, then, like, it's just not the same. And if, like, the Green Age is back, then what about the desert and I don't have my Swords and Sorcery Conan game anymore? That was fine. We we went through 20 levels. The story was done. The game is done. And if we ever want to go back to Dark Zone, we can certainly still do that. Yeah, it'll... uh it'll be a different timeline, right? Like it'll just be a different story of dark sun. Right. Uh, of course, this is also how Eperon ended for us. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, making a decision of what is the outcome for the world of Eberron? Uh, do you take the, the bargain from Belshalor or not? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even, even at the end, minor spoilers, no big spoilers here. Like Seer is back and the silver flame is gone. 
those are two giant differences from canon that if we ever pick it up and do a sequel, we're going to need to deal with because mm-hmm. those completely change, um, maybe not necessarily the tone of the game, but they, they definitely change the the secrets and the problems and the the uh, powers uh, on the continent. Yeah, I say we invade Seer. It's probably a great idea. Get, get my crown back. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, like the Maror holds and the Lazar principalities and Kabara and the Shadow Marches are all basically the same as they were before. You know, yeah. like not everything's completely different. Yep. And those changes to Seer and Thrain were caused specifically by characters from Seer and Thrain. Yeah. And then also another big part of, of our Eberron game was just the like far reaching impacts to the um to the Dragon Marked houses, right? Like mm-hmm. their relative power amongst each other has also shifted a lot. Um, and that would be an, another interesting aspect of how our Eberron world changed at the end of our campaign of like, well, how strong is House, House Caneth now? And since they seem to be dedicated to doing good stuff and not nefarious stuff, what what type of advancement can they bring for the commoners of, you know, like how can they change Eberron for the better since that seems to be the path they're set upon? Yeah, and who's the evil house now? Right. Uh, it's it's Lorander. (laughs) Run by Krakens. Come on. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Yes. It's the sound of a a storm with a Kraken at the center coming to devour us all. But I don't think that'll affect the world much. Do Krakens have shells? We're going to find out because I'm going to forge some armor out of it in the Character (laughs) Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. All right. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're... Uh, we're tuning into Morning Drive Time Radio as we build the Shock Jock. Hey, insert air horn. <laughs> the Vuvuzelas. You remember anyone? Anyone remember? God, Vuvuzelas. Miserable. All right. So, Shane, please buckle up because this is a wild one. Yeah. What's the Shock Jock? What are you doing to me? <laughs> So in fourth edition, one of the things I loved was that you had different stats that you could base uh, character classes on. Um, and you had different stats that you could base casters on. And one of the things you could do was build a constitution-based caster. You could be a warlock. Uh, you could be a psionic battle mind. I loved being like tough, but also slinging spells. And there's not really a way to do that in 4E, except for maybe right now with this build. Okay. So it is a 4E-inspired constitution-based caster. All right, so what's the build? <laughs> It is Tempest Cleric 2, Barbarian 1, Artillerist Artificer 10, Hexblade Pact of the Chain Warlock 3, Battlemaster Fighter 4. Told you it was weird. Okay. All right. So we kick off Variant Human because we want a feat right off the bat, and we'll pick plus one constitution. The other stat doesn't matter. The feat, of course, is Aberrant Dragon Mark, which gives you plus one to con, so we're starting at a 16 con, and lets you choose one sorcerer cantrip and one first level sorcerer spell that you use constitution to cast. <laughs> we, because this is the shock shock, we're going to take shock and grass, but you could take 
pretty much whatever attack cantrip that you want. And, you know, we'll stick with theme. Let's take Thunder Wave because that's also um, a great spell. Important notes, make sure you the spells that you pick are also Artificer spells, which we'll get to. Okay, so then we'll take a level of Barbarian to start. That will get us a constitution bonus to our AC. We'll get proficiency in con saves and we'll get Rage, uh, which given it gives you advantage on strength checks, gives you some non-combat uses when you're not casting. Yeah, think think about it this way. We're taking Barbarian 1 because it's cool to be a Barbarian who only attacks with spells. Uh, so, you know, you're a big, tough Barbarian with 16 con. You run up to somebody and you just shock them. Uh, but if you rage, you can't cast spells. So use it for smashing things. Or if you're in like an alternative combat objective scenario where you need to like get an object from over here or you need to like run through a gauntlet and grab a thing and get out then that's what you should do. You you rage so that you have resistance and get in there and get out. Then we'll take eight levels of Artificer. The point of this is to make sure that we pick up two uh, ability score increases, which will get our con to 20. You get Magical Tinkering, Tool Expertise, Flash of Genius. Those are great. But from Artillerist Artificer, you get Arcane Firearm, which does an additional D8 damage to um, Artificer spells. Shocking Grasp and Thunderwave are Artificer spells. So now you're doing an additional D8 every time you cast one of those. Okay. Uh, you'll also get Infusions. So we'll make sure we take Enhanced Arcane Focus. That will give us a, an increase to hit and also to our save DC with Khan. You also get second level spells. These slots can be used for Thunderwave. So you can <laughs> cast Shocking Grasp whenever you want. And you can you cast Thunderwave and upcast Thunderwave, which is doing even more damage. And then from artificer spells, pick spells that don't reference intelligence because there, there are a ton of these that are useful. Guidance and Mending, obviously. Featherfall, Identify, Aid. Blur is great for a melee uh, combatant, which you basically are. Heat, Metal, Invisibility, all great. But here's, here's the way you get more damage off of this because you don't get extra attack. Um, and, you know, Cantrip Scale, fine. You get the Eldritch Cannon at third level. You can pick the Protector, which actually makes you super tough because you get temp HP every round and you're con-based, so it, you're really hard to kill. But you can also pick the Force Ballista, which uses a ranged spell attack, and it does not require you to use intelligence, so you will be using Constitution to attack with your Force Ballista. Jesus. The, D, the DC for your Flamethrower is also Constitution-based, so use whichever one you want, which means that your attack at 4th level is doing... 2d8 shocking grasp and 2d8 fire or force from your cannon every round okay <laughs> uh then from two levels of cleric we'll get heavy armor proficiency and you can uh cause 2d8 damage as a reaction when you're hit uh and then as a channel divinity you can maximize lightning or thunder damage once per short rest oh you know pop that thunder wave and when someone fails blow it up or right. if you crit on your shocking grasp right now from here you can actually just go artificer the rest of the way if you're not going all the way to 20 which is likely but uh, if you want you can then go warlock which gets you hexblade's curse as a bonus action you curse somebody and that'll give you plus proficiency bonus to damage uh, every time you hit them which is going to count for both your cannons and your shocking grasp or your thunder wave you also get hex if you have an extra bonus action lying around um, which will do an extra d6 each time you damage them. 
And also keep in mind that your cannons only last for an hour and then you have to spend a spell slot to get them back. So if you're ever caught without a cannon, it's nice to just be able to hex somebody or curse them and still be pumping out lots of extra damage on your shocking grasps or thunder waves. I uh, suppose we're packed with the chain, so we'll get find familiar and get a you know a pseudo dragon or an imp, something that's invisible to deliver deliver touch spells like shocking grass. <laughs> For invocations, I like Fiendish Vigor because that gives you even more uh, HP. It makes you so strong. And then Gift of the Everlasting Ones means that anytime you're spending hit dice uh, within 100 feet of your familiar, it's going to be maximized. And of course, when you spend hit dice, you're adding a plus five to that every single time. So you have so much staying power. power. But if you want more, take Fighter. Second Wind, Action Surge, that's great. But Battlemaster gets Fainting Attack as a bonus action. You get advantage on your next melee attack. Any attack, including Shocking Grasp. And you deal an extra D8 damage on that attack. So you can do Warlock and Fighter even if you don't have your, your cannons up and you're doing like three extra bonus dice on your cantrip. Uh, and then I guess to wrap this up, take your last two levels of Artificer. Uh, you'll get Exploding Cannons and you can now craft a Headband of Intellect. <laughs> So if you want to just play a regular artificer who also has a 20 constitution, there you go. <laughs> this this is a real long way to go to just use Shocking Grasp. <laughs> but with constitution. <laughs> Boy. I mean, you can firebolt too, right? Like it, it certainly doesn't need to be Shocking Grasp, but you know, it's a theme build. This is yeah, this this build is exactly as satisfying as listening to Shock Jocks. <laughs> <laughs> I might play this. I definitely might play this. I love the idea of like running in and like punching someone with my chest. I think I think actually all the shocking grass are probably headbutts. <laughs> God, <laughs> it's, just... <laughs> it's just uh shocking grasp or thunder wave flamethrower. You just use your terrifying melee combatant without ever picking up a sword. All right, get me out of here <laughs> before we wrap up. <laughs> let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you leave us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about sessions on lightning rails and trains. And in the character creation forge? We're building the conductor. Well, that's it for episode 268 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Yishin. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Cobalt Press and Deep Magic for 5th edition. Deep Magic is a book of more than 700 new and amazing spells with spells for every spellcasting class. There are dozens of new subclasses and 16 divine domains, including beer and speed. Uh, Shane, there are now only 15 divine domains because I killed the god of beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> are you ascending or just uh, like jealous? Uh, nope. There's no uh, no one is in charge of the uh, beer portfolio anymore, which is why everything is Anheuser-Busch. Oh. Lame. Snatty light all the way down. Uh, you know, there's worse things. Could be bush light. There's also dark magic for villains, including blood magic, void magic, infernal magic, mythos magic, and more. There are also twists on familiar magic spells, such as Fireball, Charm Person, and Raise Dead. Plus dozens of new familiars and arcane servants. So, check out Deep Magic and find out more at 
www.coboldpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you.